Thank you to Hunt a Killer for sponsoring this video. Hunt a Killer is the best at home experience any true crime fan can have. It's literally a murder mystery delivered directly to your door where you get to play the part of a private detective. When you sign up, you're sent to receive a new box for the next six months every month, with each one including new clues and evidence that will eventually lead you to the conclusion. It's like Clue on steroids. Instead of little game pieces, you're given witness statements, newspaper articles, evidence from the scene, and more. The production value is unmatched. Each episode has six boxes, and you can get your first 20% off when you click the link below and use code DAVIS. Also, if you're interested in a more one-stop shop kind of deal, Hunt a Killer just dropped a deluxe box set, Death at the Dive Bar. This was an awesome one to work through, and the pre-order sold out in minutes, so grab one at Target or Amazon if you can. Another great thing about Hunt a Killer is a portion of profits from each box sold goes to the Cold Case Foundation, which works to solve real-life cold cases. So if any of this sounds like something you're interested in, check out that link below and grab your first subscription with the first box 20% off with code DAVIS. That's code DAVIS for 20% off your first box. And thanks again to Hunt a Killer for supporting the channel. Sharon Cole was just 12 years old, living in Washington Heights, Manhattan, on Edgecombe Avenue, when she went missing. It was the 25th of February, 1983. Around 5.30 p.m. that evening, she left her home to go play at a nearby park, where it's believed she was abducted, as she's never been seen or heard from since. According to Sharon's mother, Larissa, there were no problems at home that would have led the young girl to run away. From an article just a few weeks following, Sharon going missing, her mother said, At first, I thought she might be staying with her godmother, which she did from time to time. But when she didn't come home after a day, I called the police. The investigation began shortly after. The first piece of evidence that popped up seemed promising. There were reportedly two sightings of Sharon by friends of the family. On the 10th of March, she was said to be seen near 168th Street and Broadway, as well as in Greenwich Village. Her mother said, They said she was very dirty and looked upset. It's not like her to not take care of herself, and I'm afraid she's fallen under a bad influence. And as unfortunate as it is, that is all I can find online about Sharon Cole's case, which is part of the reason I wanted to include Kirk's in the beginning as well. When I first started looking for cases, both of these were some of the most suggested, but they were always separate. When I began looking into them, I thought of something that I hadn't seen brought up online. But before we get into that, let's talk about Kirk. Kirk went missing on the 18th of September, 1983. He was just 11 years old. He was in 7th grade, but already held various odd jobs around his residence in the Bronx to earn a little money. At the time of his abduction, around 12.30 p.m., he was picking up discarded glass bottles from the parking lot of the Top Tomatoes supermarket at 831 Rosedale Avenue. This is also the store that would give him these little odds and ends to take care of. That night, Kirk never returned home. The family and relatives went out searching, but with no luck, they contacted the police. They, too, had no luck. 
There was only one lead in Kirk's case, that being a believed sighting on October 9th at Rosedale and Soundview Avenues, but an investigation into that lead found that the eyewitness had seen Kirk's twin brother, Keith. Officer Robert Crook of the Missing Persons Bureau at the time said in an article, there appear to be no family problems or anything else that would cause him to stay away from home. And just like Sharon's case, that's where his ends. There's not much more news about it, and any coverage it receives offers no new evidence. But this is where I began thinking. What if these two cases are connected somehow? By that I mean, what if Sharon and Kirk were taken by the same person? Sharon was taken on February 25th, 1983 from Washington Heights, Manhattan. Kirk was abducted just a few months later in September at 831 Rosedale Avenue. These two locations are just 20 minutes apart from each other if one were to take Highway 95. I feel it's very possible the person who took those two children could have lived somewhere in between these two locations or possibly closer to one of them. The large gap, that being seven months, could have been from the person waiting for the search for Sharon to die down. By the point Kirk went missing, Sharon's case was more or less at a complete standstill. Of course, this is just a theory, but since I hadn't seen it talked about online anywhere, I thought I would bring it up. Either way, connected or not, both of these young children are still missing, so if you believe you have any information that can help police find them, or at least point them in the right direction, call the NYPD Missing Persons at 1-212-694-7781. It was 1981 when Soo Yao Kim and Soo Yao Yu married in Seoul, Korea. Not long after this, they made their way to the United States to settle down in New York and begin work to start a family. It took the couple some time to get their bearings straight, working in various flea markets in the area before raising enough money to open two stores of their own in 1991. One of the stores was opened in Bushwick, while the other was opened in Long Island. They'd also made a new apartment of their home and welcomed two sons into the world. It seemed they were on their way to live the life they'd hoped to when coming to New York, but on the 29th of June, that dream became a nightmare. That day started like any other, with Sue Yao dropping her sons off at their grandmother's house before going shopping. The day passed with no incident, but when Sue Yao's husband came home at 8pm and she wasn't home, he began to worry. He called all of her close friends, but no one had said they'd seen her or knew where she could have been. He went out looking with his brother, hoping to find her, but all they found was her car parked in a parking garage and the engine was cold. He told Unsolved Mysteries, My wife had never been out that late in the ten years of our marriage. I was getting more and more worried. I could not stop thinking something bad must have happened to her. I stayed up all night waiting for her, but she didn't come home. The following day, Su Yao's husband got a call from the morgue saying a young woman's body was found the previous night. It was Su Yao. Again, from Unsolved Mysteries, I could not and did not want to believe what was going on. As soon as I recognized my wife's body, I felt everything was over. The whole world seemed to crash down on me. I could not think of anything else except my children. Su Yao had been found completely nude and stabbed nine times before being left in a dumpster in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn 
just seven miles from her apartment in Queens. Though she was nude, there were no signs of sexual assault. This was believed to be an instance of random, albeit violent, act, but there was a witness who came forward and was able to aid police. A young man, Joe Jones, who was working security in the area that night and claimed he saw a man walking around the abandoned building at 3 in the morning. When he approached the man, the guard was offered $20, assumingly to keep the sighting between the two of them. But when the guard took the 20 he noticed the man had blood on him. The guard asked the man how the blood got there, but the man didn't answer. Joe said on Unsolved Mysteries, He gets in the car and drives away, but he stops at the corner. I think he thought I was going to go back and see what he put into the garbage, and I really got suspicious when he was looking at me and I was looking at him. So when I went back, I looked on the ground and saw spots, spots of blood going toward the garbage can. Following this, Joe brought a friend over to inspect the dumpster that had a trail of blood leading to it. They saw a woman's hand, and by pure coincidence, they were able to flag down a passing ambulance. Unfortunately, Su Yao had been killed some time before, and she was announced dead at the scene. Before the man Joe had seen drove off in what Joe believed was a Nissan, he'd gotten a quick glimpse at the license plate, and this seemed like a solid lead. It did lead to one match. This match led police to a Taiwanese exchange student at a Long Island college who claimed she'd not driven it since around 10 o'clock the night before. Coupled with this, there was no blood found in the car, and of course Joe, the guard, said he'd seen a man, and one that spoke to him in English. Needless to say, this young woman was not the person they were looking for. This left the police baffled, as everything they had led to nothing. It was then the focus switched to Joe Jones as a suspect. Joe was given a lie detector test, said to pass with flying colors, and following more questioning, was eventually ruled out as a suspect. Through the questioning, Joe did give the police a description of the man he saw, and this composite sketch was drawn up. Unfortunately, nothing has come up in Suyao's case since the initial investigation. Her husband traveled back to South Korea with his two sons two years after his wife passed, telling Unsolved Mysteries, I could not stand being in the store anymore because everything there reminded me of my wife. Now there are no good memories for me here in America. Since it happened, I lost all my hopes and dreams. I've suffered so much. I'm still struggling hard to get over my wife's death for the sake of our children. I still truly love and miss her. The police have said their working theory in this case is that the man who killed Su Yao may have been a delivery driver or a taxi driver. The location of the dumpster was rather hidden from the streets, so only someone with an immense knowledge of the area would have known about it. Some have suggested that Su Yao was a victim of the Long Island serial killer, but she was killed about five years before the Long Island serial killer was believed to begin his murder spree, so I feel it's unlikely. Nevertheless, Su Yao's case is still unsolved after all this time, and it seems to be frozen in place. If you do believe you have any information that can lead police to some answers, like who this man could be, don't hesitate. Call the NYPD Crime Stoppers at 1-800-577-8477. Malin Reynoso left her job at a global gas station in New York, New York on the 27th of July, 2016, around 10 p.m. 
She wouldn't be seen again until the 31st, four days after she'd gone missing. In the span of four days, there was no Amber Alert, seemingly no investigation, and next to nothing in the media. Many online have attributed this to Malin being Latina, and therefore not being seen as, as important to investigators. We've seen similar cases to this in the past. With that said, there was help from the community in an attempt to get Malin's name and face out there. She was very active on social media, and so a recent photo of her was easy to come by. These photos were placed on flyers all around the city and in the subway with hopes of someone seeing it and coming forward, but to no avail. No tips came. The first break came in the case on the 31st, as we said before. It was on this day Malin was found in the Harlem River. Her family wasn't notified that it could have been their daughter until a week following their discovery. When they were notified, Malin was only identifiable by her tattoos. There are no details as to how long she'd been there, nor had the police reported how she was killed. If she was jogging, the Makem's Dam Bridge, which goes over the Harlem River, would just be a few minutes away. I would say it's safe to assume she was killed not long after leaving work that night. Some online have suggested that Malin took her own life by jumping from the Makem's Dam Bridge, citing that she'd suffered from bipolar and depression. But I find this unlikely. When someone commits suicide, there's a large chance they want to be found. Jumping into a river is not the easiest way to do so. Another popular theory is that she simply ran away, but from the coverage I have seen, that doesn't seem very likely either. I'd like to take a second to shed a light on an issue in our society and in our media and how different cases are represented. As heartbreaking as it is, and I hate to use this case as an example, but it truly looks like Malin just did not get the coverage and justice she, her friends, and family deserved. Many bring up the case of Karina Vetrano, a young white woman who went missing under very similar circumstances just two months after Malin's murder. This case, though, gained national attention. Karina's killer was caught and sent to prison for life without the possibility of parole. In Malin's case, we don't even know what killed her. An autopsy could show that fairly easily, and yet it's been four years and we just don't know. Even if Malin took her own life, the family and her friends are entitled to know that's the case. If you believe you have any information about Malin's case, don't hesitate to report it. You would be amazed at the small amount of information that can lead to a huge break in someone's case. You can call the NYPD Crime Stoppers at 1-800-577-8477. Hey everyone, I just wanted to say thanks for taking some time out of your day to listen to all these cases here tonight. I know this video is a little bit shorter than the normal ones we do here, but unfortunately a lot of these cases didn't really have a whole lot to go off of. With that said, it kind of just made me want to cover them more because there wasn't a lot to talk about. I wanted to make sure I represented those cases that like I said, don't get a lot of coverage, whether that be because of the ethnicity of the person, the identity of the person, whatever it may be. Uh, it's unfortunate that some of these cases just did not get the justice that they could have gotten if steps were taken when they should have been. But 
aside from all that, I just again want to say thank you to everyone who took some time to watch the video. If you want to support the channel, there are links in the description to my Patreon. You can become a member of the channel as well. Both of those are a dollar a month, and they will get you all of the new videos a day or two days in advance, just depending on how I'm feeling that week. Also, if you want to become part of the Mr. Davis Investigation Agency, we have merch for that in the Teespring store, also in the description down below. So again, thank you everyone for watching. I'll see you very soon with a brand new video. Take care of yourself, take care of each other, and as always, stay safe out there.